want you to uh, turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 this morning. That's on page 1251 in the Bibles in front of you there. Feel free to use those. Um, we're continuing. By the way, my name's Travis. Hi, how are you? In case you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors at this church. And it's just awesome to be together and to be worshiping Jesus and hearing from him together. Um, we are uh, continuing this week in a series called The Image of God. And what that's all about is that in Genesis, when God created uh, everything, he gets to this creation of man and he says that man and woman, men and women together, are created in the image of God. This Hebrew word, tselem. It's the same word used for an idol. An idol, an image, something that is made that represents that which it represents, that shows uh, the characteristics, qualities, nature of that which it represents. So God says that's what we Men and women are. We are the image of God. Not just shared attributes with God. Not just that we share some attributes like him. But that we share a purpose that he has invited us into in this world. He made the world. And he made it good. And he filled the world with human beings. And he rules over the world. And he has invited us. Being the image of God means he's invited us to fill the world with more human beings and to rule with him on this earth. Now, that word rule for us doesn't have good connotations, does it? What do you think of when someone says, man, I rule this place? Or that's the ruler of that nation. We think of armies. We think of power plays. We think of powering up and taking over and using authority you have to advantage yourself at the disadvantage of others. But that is not the original meaning or way that mankind ruled over the earth. Ruling isn't what we see today. Instead, it's working and serving to increase the good that God made and to ensure human flourishing. That's the whole point of ruling. And boiled down, God's invitation to us to rule in this earth is an invitation to love. We give of ourselves, we sacrifice of ourselves, and we love and we give for the sake of other human beings. That's what ruling, that's what having dominion in this world means. But all of this came crashing down, didn't it? Genesis chapter 3, one of the darkest moments in human history. We see mankind rebel against God who loved them and who they trusted. And we see them take instead of receive. We see them increase bad and evil instead of good. We see them bring death instead of life. We see them distrust God instead of trusting him. And so now, the state that we, when we look at mankind across the earth, what do we see? We see brokenness. And we see man ruling like animals, ruling like beasts, through violence, through lying in wait, in the weeds until someone is weak enough and then we pounce and seize power through lying, through deceiving, through intimidating and through threats. We see mankind flipping and being ruled and ruling like beasts. But at the very end of this dark chapter, Genesis chapter 3, there is this blinding ray of hope. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, snake, and her offspring. Which offspring? The one that he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the hope. One of Eve's descendants that would come along, a human being, but also God, would come along, and the snake who brought all this pain and, and brokenness into this world, the devil, we will see this son of Eve standing on his head. Sorry if I scared you. <laughs> I did that last service, and people <laughs> jumped, so I thought I'd try it again. You guys are much braver than last service. <clears throat> Um, we, see, we see this picture of the Son of Man stepping, this, this death wound to a snake, standing on his head and destroying his works. So this is the hope. The name of that offspring of Eve is who? Jesus. Come on. It's who? Jesus. His name is? Jesus. His name is? Jesus. That's what I want to hear. His name is? Jesus. Thank you. One more time. But the way that Jesus accomplished this promise is the most unexpected, undeserved, scandalous event in history. No one saw it coming. And when we see it, it not only presents us with truth and forgiveness, but it presents us with a choice. Have any of you read the epic novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables? It's, it's French, Les Miserables, or uh, it looks like Les Miserables. Uh, there, there's a Broadway show, there's been several movies that have been made of it, but it's this epic story of redemption in a man's life named Jean Valjean. Now, Jean Valjean, the story goes, he stole bread when he was very young to, to feed his starving family. He spends 19 years in prison, and it ruins him. It turns him into the animal that they thought he was when he stole the bread. It utterly ruins him, it changes him, it wrecks his soul. Now, when he gets out of prison, he's released, and he travels, and he finds uh, a place to stay with a bishop in a small town, bishop of the church, and this priest lets him in and feeds him, and while he's feeding him, Jean Valjean notices all of the, the very valuable silverware, so in the middle of the night, he steals the silverware because he needs money, and he takes off. He's caught. This thief who just got released from jail is caught having stolen silverware no less from a church. He's brought back to the bishop, and his life is, for all intents and purposes, over. He will spend the rest of his life in prison. Except, when he gets taken back to the bishop's house, the bishop covers for him and says, Oh, Jean Valjean, you only took the silverware. You forgot to take the candlesticks as well that I told you I was giving you. And in that moment, Jean Valjean is awestruck, but he's not happy. Because such grace that was extended to him offers him a choice. This is what it says. When Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, he was, as we have seen, quite thrown out of everything that had been his thought hitherto. He could not yield to the evidence of what was going on within him. He hardened himself against the angelic action and the gentle words of that old man. He hardened himself. 
He says to himself, you have promised me to become an honest man. I buy your soul. I take it away from the spirit of perversity. I give it to the good God, is what the bishop says to him. This thought recurred to his mind unceasingly. To this celestial kindness, he opposed pride, which is the fortress of evil within us. He was indistinctly conscious that the pardon of this priest was the greatest assault and the most formidable attack which had moved him yet. With this obduracy, was finally settled if he resisted with clemency, this clemency. That if he yielded, he should be obliged to renounce that hatred with which the actions of other men had filled his soul through so many years and which pleased him. That this time, it was necessary to conquer or be conquered. And that struggle, a colossal and final struggle, had been begun between his viciousness and the goodness of that man. What a disturbing and beautiful picture of exactly where we find ourselves. There is a severity in the mercy of God. The grace of Jesus is both gentle and forceful. When we are presented with a forgiveness, that means we must let go of all that we've held on to. There's a gentleness and a greatness and a wideness in that mercy, but it is forceful and upsetting. At the same moment that he extends forgiveness, he presents a choice, a choice that will overturn all that we've known of living and ruling in this world. This choice doesn't start with a surrendering to new behavior. This isn't about seeing good behavior and now I'm just going to do that. This choice starts with surrendering to a person, Jesus. Now the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 describes Jesus as he was the image of God. Read with me in Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Know this. Jesus is the image of God, but Jesus is the unique imager of God. The unique imager of God. Why am I saying imager rather than image? Because imaging God is a verbal thing. It's something we do. Jesus was the unique imager of God. Jesus completely shared our humanity and still does. At the right hand of the Father where he rules right now, he is still a human being. But he was unique. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the exact imprint of God's nature. If God was a stamp and you took some clay and you stamped God into the clay and you looked at it, what would you see? Jesus. He's the exact imprint of God in his nature. In Genesis 1, Moses described for us what it means to be humans uh, made as imagers of God, filling the world with other imagers and ruling over it, having dominion in this world. And here in Colossians 1, there's no question in my mind that Paul was thinking about Genesis 1 when he wrote Colossians 1. So many of the same words and ideas, but speaking of Jesus. And he describes Jesus as the image of God, but to a degree that's in a class of its own. Look at this, Colossians 1.16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Humans are the image of God. We image God in that we are given dominion over the earth. But Jesus is shown to be the unique image of God because he has universal dominion. Myself, as an imager of God, I have authority and influence over my small little piece of the world, and so do you. And we image God, oftentimes not very well, in, in how we lead that part of our world. But Jesus, because of who he is, he is God. He's given dominion over everything that was ever created. So he's imaging God by ruling, but he's ruling all things, universal dominion. And Jesus images his Father in ways that we could never even attempt because he and the Father share one nature. We are the images of God, but Jesus is the unique image of God. Look here in verse 19. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God. Everything it means to be God dwelt in Jesus. It is his identity. Jesus is the full, and get this, this is important, the full, unbroken image of God. We are the image of God, but we are broken. Jesus is the full, unbroken image of God. We tend to think of ourselves and the people around us as normal human beings, right? So when someone is uh, living their life and they make a mistake and you're trying to be gracious about it, what, what do we say? We say, after all, he's only... What? Only human. After all, she's only human. And, and that's okay to say. It's true. Because most humans we see, all humans we see, are very broken and make lots of mistakes. Lots of things that we've done wrong. But in a way, that sentence actually isn't correct. Because Jesus, as he lived here on earth, imaged God in the way that it was intended to be done. Jesus is more human than any of us have ever been. Jesus, walking in complete surrender to God the Father, only living a life of love, never sinning, that's what a normal human being is. That's the original design. So you and I, we are the image of God that wasn't taken away from us, but we are not normal humans. Our sin, our rebellion, our brokenness makes us abnormal human beings. Did any of you ever watch Twilight Zone? The old Twilight Zone. Not Twilight, that vampire nonsense. I'm talking about a show based in reality. Twilight Zone, Rod Sterling, black and white. Remember when I was a kid watching this episode called Eye of the Beholder. 
And it starts off with this woman, and she's got her face all wrapped up in bandages. And you, and you see these doctors and nurses, but only from their back, and, and, and their faces are all in the dark. You can't see what they look like. And they're explaining to her, we've done the treatments. We've done the best we can. We hope that we've fixed your face. We hope that you will now look normal like the rest of us. We're going to undo the bandages, and hopefully you will be normal like us now. They begin unwrapping the bandages, and they unwrap it, and all of a sudden you see her face, and it's a normal human being face. She looks completely normal. And then the light comes on, and you see the doctors and the nurses' faces, and they're grotesque, and they're all scarred and wounded and look gross. And they want her to look like them, and it's just so too bad she looks the way she does. That's the reality with Jesus. We think he's weird because he's normal, because he's a healthy human being actually walking in the image of God, and we crucified him because he didn't look like us. Jesus is the most normal human being that ever walked the planet because Jesus imaged God by living out humanity's original design. He lived right side up while surrounded by the kingdom of the upside down. This world is upside down. He walked right side up in the world of the upside down, so he looked weird, but he's the only normal one. And it's too simplistic to look at Jesus' life and say he did good things. There's a more clear description of what Jesus did. What we're actually seeing him do when we read about his life in the Gospels and all the amazing things he did and how good he was and how loving he was, what we're actually seeing is we're seeing him be the image of God as God intended. Jesus' message on earth was about a kingdom. He's, he says this in Matthew 4, 17. He says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message was there's a kingdom coming and it's invading this kingdom of the world, this upside-down kingdom. Now, do you know what everyone listening to him heard? Because they didn't hear the same thing you just did. You heard the kingdom of God, and that to you is a, a positive thing, a kingdom invading another kingdom. Because you've, a lot of you have grown up in the church, you think about the kingdom of God, that's a positive thing. When people in this day heard about another kingdom coming into another kingdom, invading another kingdom, what pictures went through their mind? War. What they had seen not too long ago when the Roman uh, campaign came through and sacked Jerusalem, raped, pillaged, and murdered, and now they're under Rome's control. They read in their history about how Assyria and Babylon had conquered them and done horrible things in the name of power. To them, that's the picture of a kingdom coming a kingdom, another outside kingdom being at hand. So what they heard Jesus say is, I am a warlord who believes I'm about to conquer Rome in the way that Rome conquered us. Blood. There will be war. There will be blood. From your own experience, when you hear in the news the word regime change, what does that mean? It means armies, it means guns, it means fighting, it means death, it means civilian casualties, and a whole lot of blood. 
But when Jesus announces the arrival of his kingdom, look at the next thing he does. Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. That means good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among them. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics and he healed them. Does that sound like an invasion to you? But it was. This is such an odd invasion. It doesn't look like one kingdom, kingdom being toppled by another. Where is the powering up? Where is the armies? Where is the weapons? Where is the blood? But you see, Jesus isn't playing by the rules of this upside-down kingdom where that's how a kingdom comes. He's waging war with the tactics of heaven. Walking as the image of God in love. At every turn, we see Jesus rejecting beastly rule and embracing what it means to rule as humans were intended to. Producing life and human flourishing, not death and human suffering. Increasing good, not evil. Kneeling to serve, not grasping at power. And if we thought this was a strange invasion, it gets even stranger. Look back at Colossians 1.19. But before, let me ask you a question. Imagine you have more power and authority than anyone else on the earth. Just imagine this. You can do anything you want and get away with it. And no one can stop you. And you want to prove that you're that powerful. You want to prove you're the most powerful being in the universe. Let me ask you, what's your next move? Get some wealth, probably going to involve some houses and some cars and some boats. And then I'm going to get an army. And the places that I don't yet rule, I'm going to invade them. I'm going to take them over whatever it costs. And I'm going to make the people who live there serve me. That's the way of this world. That would be normal for someone who's grown up in this upside-down kingdom to assert their enormous power. And it's been repeated countlessly in human history, hasn't it been? You open up the history book and you can see that kind of power being used in that way. But after Paul describes how all-powerful Jesus is, look at how he describes Jesus' next move. This is the apex of Jesus' invasion, of, of, of his bringing his kingdom to this broken, upside-down kingdom. This is Jesus going for the jugular. Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, get this, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the apex of Jesus bringing his kingdom invading the upside-down kingdom of this world with his, by the blood of his cross. Jesus imaged God fully by dying sacrificially. You want to see what God is like? 
Look at Jesus on the cross. Don't miss the weirdness in this. To us, this is not normal. Jesus is before all things. All things are made by him and for him. He has all power, all dominion over all things, and he proves it by being stripped naked, beaten, whipped, spit on, mocked, impaled, and murdered on a Roman execution device called a cross. This should shock us. Because all we ever see of power is how it becomes corrupt and benefits itself by crushing others. That's what we see of power. Just turn on the news. You'll see it. But Jesus, being the exact image of God, refused to play by the rules of this upside-down kingdom. The rules that everyone else played by did not change who he was or where he was from. He lived like a citizen of heaven even though he was surrounded by hell. It didn't change him. He didn't adapt to the ways of the kingdom of this world. He lived as an imager of God all the way through. Jesus has a completely different view of ruling and what power is for. Just look at Jesus' trial before the Jewish leaders, just hours before he was going to be executed. He's got the high priest interrogating him. They want him dead because he's walking upside down in their upside down world. And he's being interrogated by the the high priest. And, And listen to this, Matthew 26, 63. Get this. There's some nuances here I really want you to hear, and it's mind-blowing, okay? And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Note the question, are you the Son of God? If Jesus says yes to this, it's blasphemy in their eyes, except for the fact it was true. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, something you're just about to witness, get this, from now on, you're going to witness something, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Now, when we read it as as, as people who speak English and as Westerners, We look at this and we say, he asked him if he's the son of God, and he says, no, I'm a son of man. Isn't that downgrading himself? No. Because, let me tell you a secret. This chief priest knows where Jesus is quoting from. Is Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is this vision that Daniel has in the night, where this ancient of days, God the Father, has now destroyed all of his enemies, all of the kingdoms of the world are now under his command, and he sees one like the Son of Man. It looks like a human. It is a human, but he's also God, riding a cloud up to these thrones, and he's seated on a throne, given all power and all dominion, and all those kingdoms are given to him. He is now reigning over all of the world's kingdoms. So when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, rising on the clouds, he says, blasphemy. Because he's claiming to be the all-powerful king from Daniel 7. And this is ultimately what got Jesus killed. Why? Because the high priest knew exactly what Jesus meant. But I don't want you to miss a very subtle yet mind-bending thing that Jesus did here. Get this. 
at the same moment that Jesus is looking back to the picture of his being lifted up and being enthroned that's portrayed in the book of Daniel, he is also very aware of and envisioning what is just about to happen a few hours from now, his crucifixion. In one fell swoop, Jesus weaves these two pictures together. Daniel's picture of him being lifted up and enthroned and being lifted up on a cross and dying. He weaves these two pictures together. Here's what Jesus is saying. The cross was and is Jesus' enthronement. When we see Jesus nailed to a cross, we see him enthroned as king. Because when you're imaging God in the kingdom of the upside down, thrones look like crosses. On the cross, Jesus took into himself the consequences of our beastly rebellion and our rule, our broken, violent, beastly rule. It's called sin. He took it into himself. And in that same moment, he took the throne as the king of a kingdom that will one day completely defeat and destroy the works of this broken kingdom we've created in our own image. God is no longer invisible. He took Jesus and made him king. He's no longer an elusive idea lost by the blindness of our rebellion. Our God is seen perfectly in Jesus. And seeing and treasuring Jesus is exactly what we need most. Jesus he is the focus of every part of our lives. Our imaging of God doesn't start with behaving. It starts with beholding. Our becoming more like Christ, and we're broken images of God, but us reclaiming that which was broken and be walking in that new life and, and walking as Jesus did, it doesn't begin with just imitating behavior. Please don't start there. Our imaging of God doesn't start with behaving. It starts with beholding. God never revoked us as images of God. When we sinned, he didn't revoke it. But we are broken images. Mirrors that have been cracked and shattered. We were supposed to reflect God. And now we're broken and shattered mirrors. We cannot just boil down imaging God to good behavior. We are reflectors of God's character who he is and what he does. We are not the creators of it. I want to show you something. Would you dim the lights, please? The most basic reality of reflection is that there first has to be a source of light. First of all, above and beyond anything, if anything needs, is going to be reflected, there has to be light. There has to be a source of light that is shining. But here's where we come in. If we are going to reflect the goodness, the character, the actions of God, we have to be facing the light. 
if I were to turn this mirror around and it was facing this way, what good is it? What is it reflecting? Nothing or myself. No one wants to see that. A reflector, by its very nature, has to be facing the source. Sorry if I get you in the eyes here. Has to be facing the source that it wants to reflect. If it is not, it is not reflecting. We don't create the light source. We reflect it. Turn the lights back on. Thank God for daughters who have uh, compacts that I can borrow. <laughs> it's not mine, I promise. Here we go. A mirror can only reflect that which it is facing. We would be foolish and lost to try to image God without facing Jesus, beholding Jesus, treasuring Jesus, trusting Jesus, and being with Jesus. It doesn't matter how long you've grown up in the church or you've been saved and you've known Jesus. It doesn't matter how long. If you are not regularly beholding Jesus through Scripture, seeing who he was, reading about him, reflecting on his character, loving who he is, wanting who he is, if you are not daily doing that, how are you supposed to reflect him? You're not facing him. You will never be too old or know Jesus too long where you don't need to daily see him, worship him, treasure him, behold him. It doesn't matter how gray your hair is. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you've memorized or how much biblical knowledge you have. If you are not beholding Jesus, loving him, facing him, and saturating your mind and your thoughts with who he is, you cannot reflect him. It's impossible. If we want to truly image God and reflect him as we were designed, it must start with loving him and treasuring him and beholding him above all other things every single day. There is no shortcut. There's no shortcut. If you are not obsessed with Jesus, you will be a very dim light in this world, if a light at all. So I'm not going to give you a list of things to do this week. This week, for many of us, I believe, has to be recapturing the awe of Jesus. You've gotten used to him. He's become old news to you. He's become the, the flannel graph stories, those little cartoonish pictures that you saw when you were a kid. And, and maybe this week, for many of us, is reclaiming an awe of his greatness and who he is and looking at him, seeing him, and treasuring him. Some of you are still meeting in groups. Some groups uh, here have taken a break, but 
I'm not going to give you a list of questions to, to talk through, but I do want to give you some thoughts. As you're with other Christians this week, if you meet with a small group or, or if you meet with other Christian brothers and sisters or your family or whoever it may be, uh, roommates, whoever, I don't want to give you a list of questions. Instead, here's what I would suggest you do. Together in your community, talk about Jesus. When's the last time, just think about this, when's the last time with like a, a, another group of believers, just a, a group of believers, you sat around having coffee and you just talked about Jesus, just who he is to you, what he's done. You testified to the things he's done in your life and how gracious he's been to you. When's the last time you just sat and talked about him, not as an idea, not as an, a theological idea, but as a person who has really invaded your life in such an amazing way and who has changed you and who has forgiven you and who has been so merciful to you. When's the last time you just sat with people and talked about him? I'd like to invite the band to come up right now. But this, this week, be with people and face Jesus and see who he is from other people's experiences with him. View him through his word. Reflect him through his word. And just absorb how great, wonderful, and loving he is. It would be wrong for us, I believe, right now just to leave without beholding Jesus. So right now, don't pack up. Don't get ready to go. Y'all do it every week. This is a time for, for us to begin doing what we just talked about. This is a time for us to look at Jesus, behold him, treasure him, and absorb who he is. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you and we need to see your son. We love you and ask that you would right now in this moment as we sing, Show us Jesus. May we treasure him and behold him above all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.